Okay, so. We were signed up by we, I mean myself and a number of other people, not my third trimester wife, for the upcoming Arizona Spartan race. And just this last week, Spartan sent out a notification that because it is on the Indian reservation, the Indian reservation requirements mean that there's, got, there's going to be no kids race, no spectators, you have to wear a mask except when you're on the race course, and you cannot enter unless you have proof of vaccination. We're living in amazing times. We're living in an amazing time. And, it, little side note, it wound up being a good uh, reminder for me to not give an answer before I hear, because when I heard about it, I never saw the email, I just heard about it, and I, what I heard was that they were just, that was their policy now for all races. And so I sent a, uh, a text to the founder about, you know, my, my opinion on that. And then found out more. So that was just a good little mental or, or personal, don't give an answer before you hear. Listen all the way through. So that's just an anecdote to the side as a reminder for all of us. But anyway, all that to say, just that we are living in amazing times and it is easy to see problems all around us. Bizarre things happening that shouldn't be. The title of my talk today is Spiritual Warfare in Real Life. I want to talk about, we, we talk about spiritual warfare, and then we talk about stuff that's going on in the world around us. I think sometimes it's difficult for us to connect the dots between spiritual warfare, which is almost like this sci-fi thing that happens in the heavenlies, and then there's our daily life where we deal with the stuff that's going on in the world around us. I want to try to, I, I want to talk about warfare, Christian warfare, Christian spiritual warfare. I got three main points that we're going to talk about. Number one is that warfare is the reality and not the exception. Number two is that we often misidentify the key battlegrounds. And number three we need to have a strategy. Okay? We need to have a strategy. So, number one, warfare is the reality and not the exception. And when we don't get this right, it leads to a lot of our problems. Imagine a battlefield. Imagine World War II Iwo Jima. Bullets are flying everywhere. And one of these soldiers... You know, he, he, bad guys come up at him and he shoots him down and he puts his gun down and he tried to take another selfie. And every time, some other bad guy runs up and gets in the way of his selfie again. And he's got to put his phone away and he's got to pull his gun out and he's got to fight the bad guy. And, oh, man, can I, and he puts his gun down and he picks up his phone. He's trying to get a good angle with, you know, so he can post it on Instagram. You would look at that man and say, you do not belong on a battlefield. You do not understand what is happening right now. Your mind is supposed to be on a task here, and you don't get it, and you're going to die fast, right? Too often, that's us. We thought life was supposed to be easy. We thought life was supposed to be fun. We thought life was supposed to be a Hallmark movie. We thought life was supposed to just be kind of like a nice little canoe ride, and we sail along, and Jesus is my co-pilot, and everything's good. That's not biblical. Now, part of that comes from a desire in our hearts that is innate and godly. Before the fall, there was no death. There was still work. But there weren't the thorns and thistles that we have now. There wasn't the curse on the labor of the womb. So, part of that, we have this longing for a peace, a no more tears, a joy and satisfaction that is right. And that is coming. But it's not yet. Right now we're living in the fallen world. And Jesus didn't say, come to me and I will make your life easy. Come to me and there will be no more trials. He does say, come to me 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you keep reading in that, and what's he talking about? He's talking about rest for your souls. It doesn't mean an easy life. That means rest at a soul level. When we come to Christ, he gives us rest, and also he says, take up your cross. Come to me and die. Give up everything and follow me. And that might mean literal death. That might mean literal poverty. Or that might mean you're super wealthy. And you know what? Who does all that wealth belong to? Christ. And what do you use it for? What Christ says to. Period. It might mean you wind up without a family. Your family all hates you and they renounce you. Or it might mean you wind up with a family and you're called to sacrifice yourself for your family. Whatever it is, when you come to Christ, he says, you're now mine. You are now my soldier. You are now on my battlefield. And you march according to my orders. And that's the best place to be. He is a good and loving general. He is both our king and our brother and our friend and our sacrifice who gave himself in our place. So it's not a... a the, uh, the military presents a picture of submission in boot camp that just kind of, you know, you better do what I say, soldier! And there's no relationship there. It's just, you better straighten up, do what I say, or you're in trouble. That's not the kind of king that Jesus is. But at the same time, he's still the king. He loves us. He cares for us. Our Father will discipline us if we get out of line. But we can't lose sight of the fact that he's our king, and we take orders. And God told us, in the world we are in, this is a world at war. That is the reality that we are facing. If we're on the battlefield constantly trying to get back to the way life is supposed to be, constantly trying to get back to normal life, you know, normal life is supposed to be everything goes according to the schedule, all the meals are on time, and the kids' schooling is progressing normally, and I get off work at the time I want to get off work so I can get home and do family worship with everybody with the amount of time, and we're in bed on time, and wake up on time, and everyone's well-rested and well-fed. And that's how life's supposed to go, right? No. Sounds nice. It, it sounds very nice. But that's not what we were promised when we came to Christ. Oh, there shouldn't be any conflict in our relationships. You know, Everything should just be hunky-dory. It should just go on, and everything's good. Everything should feel, it should feel like Christmas Eve every day. Well, that's not what Jesus ever promised. But if that's what we're expecting, then every time it doesn't feel like Christmas Eve, our heart is already set up to be mad about it. Oh man, I've got to deal with this thing now? Really? Why can't it just go the way it's supposed to? We need to understand it is going the way it's supposed to. That's the point. You're on a battlefield, so stop trying to take selfies. Pick up your sword and go do what Christ called you to do. He told you trials were going to come. Face the trials in my strength. And too often, it really doesn't take much by way of trials to get us sidetracked. I mean, a selfie is really not that bad of an illustration for a lot of the trials that, that really throw us off. A man, dinner's running late? Or... You know, oh, we're not in the car on time for the event. Or, you know, the, the, the kid threw up on, the, on the, the floor or fill in the blank. You know, oh, it, take, it took half an hour to take care of the animals. It should only take 20 minutes. All these little things. Because we expected it to all go the way it was supposed to. And so there goes our joy. Instead of saying, Lord, I'm here on your battlefield. I'm taking orders from you. And if what you want me doing right now is... This thing that I, you know, fixing the, the plumbing line that broke. And now when I was supposed, you know, I was planning to do this. And now I have to do this instead and I miss out. Instead it's, okay, Lord, this is where you want me. These are my orders. That's where I want to be. Let's look at a couple scripture verses that paint this picture for us. That we need to realize that warfare is the reality. It is normal in this life. First Timothy Chapter 6, verse 12. <coughs> yeah, it's a, it is a... Um, okay, first I'll read, the, I'll read this verse. First Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called 
and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul didn't tell Timothy, cruise the good cruise of faith. Hang out with the, whole, hang out with the eternal life to which you were called. No, he said, fight. Grab onto that thing. And don't let go. We see this in, in Proverbs, talking about wisdom. How you have, to, you have to hunt for wisdom. You have to chase her down, so to speak. It's a fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. If we have the wrong perspective, then Christian warfare language is just kind of stressful. Like, do we have, does it have to, why do we have to keep talking about fighting? Does it have to be warfare? Is it always, why does it always fight, 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 fight? If we're coming from the wrong perspective. If you come from the right perspective, you realize that the only way for it to not be stressful is if you're thinking about it as a fight. Because it's going to be a fight either way. But if you were thinking about it as a gondola ride and you wind up on a battleship, that's stressful. But if you were planning on being on a battleship and lo and behold, you're on a battleship, your heart's in the right place. That doesn't mean it's not stressful. It means you're coming from a perspective that's prepared to deal with the reality that we are at war. I'm thinking of uh, George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. What was it? Did he have the guy close the, the blackout shades or something? He's like, don't you know there's a war on? But that's true. That's a question we got to ask ourselves. Don't you know there's a war on? 1 Corinthians 9. Twenty-four to twenty-seven. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Okay, we're switching to a different analogy. This is an athlete now. What verse? This is First Corinthians nine twenty-four. Now 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul has a perspective on his life, his self-discipline, his body, his self-control, that I am, I'm in a race, I'm in a boxing match. I'm in this to win this. I'm committed all the way. He has a combative mentality. He's not just coasting. He's not just hoping things go okay, and when they don't go okay, he kind of deals with it, and then he gets back to hoping things go okay again. No. He's recognizing I'm, I'm at war here. I'm in a race here. I don't have time to waste. I mean, think about that picture of an athlete for a minute. You think about, like, the Olympian athletes... I remember hearing about Michael Phelps. How many calories did he consume daily? It was like 3,000 and something calories, I think. You know, the recommended daily average is 2,000. He consumes, what is an astronomical number. He's just consuming a ton of calories. And what do you think he's getting those calories from? Probably not donuts. Probably not pizza. He's probably drinking protein shakes and eating superfood salads. And Why? Well, because he wants the gold medal. So everything else is subject to the gold. I want that prize. So I train and I watch my diet and I get eight hours of sleep every night and so on and so forth. He then does it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So for us, it may look very different. For us, part of running the race may mean we don't get eight hours of sleep every night because we're not running for the same prize. We're not running with the same goal, but we're still running towards the goal and it's a much more important goal. So are we exercising the self-control and focusing on, are our eyes on the prize of pleasing Christ? It's so much more than just, so, and don't, we can use physical analogies, but the danger is always that when you use physical analogies, it gets you stuck on the physical to where now it's all about self-discipline like Michael Phelps does. Self-discipline in my diet and my exercise and my getting enough sleep. Well, those are good things. You need to be a good steward of your body. But there's a whole lot more here to this because Michael Phelps is doing all that stuff because he's running for a physical wreath. And, and I don't know his heart. I mean, I'm not saying that Christians can't compete in sports, but if a Christian's competing in sports, he realizes that that gold medal is just a picture of what he's really living for. 
So don't the the uh, Paul's analogy doesn't mean we should all actually go take MMA classes. I mean, not that it's bad to learn self defense or bad to to obviously it's good to know those things, but we need to keep them in their proper place. Just because we use a physical analogy doesn't mean oh that's 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 the way to be self disciplined. But we do need to be self disciplined. We do need to be self controlled. We do need to be running to receive the prize. Okay, Matthew sixteen twenty four. Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. And the... uh, little title that my Bible has over that is a good description. Discipleship is costly. Jesus says, come to me and leave everything behind. You're mine now. That is the gospel. That is the truth of the gospel. You come to Christ, period. You don't come to Christ dragging stuff behind you. You come to Christ with empty hands. And you say, Jesus, put in my hands what you want to be in my hands. And you can take it from my hands when you want to take it from my hands. And I will rejoice to be yours. Because you are my treasure. I come to lose my life for your sake. And therefore, that is Christian warfare. That is what we are called to do. So number one, warfare is the reality, not the exception. Number two, we often misidentify the key battlegrounds. Or to rephrase that point in a positive way, identify the key battlegrounds. We live in a world that testifies to the reality of the cosmic conflict that's going on. Because everywhere you look, there are battlefields. And I'm not even talking, I'm, I'm talking about pictures of battlefields. Sports. What is sports? Sport competitions are constant battlefields. It's a football match between two teams. Who's going to win? It's an Olympic match. Who's going to win the medal? And people get super wrapped up into sports. It's, it resonates with something that God put inside of us. This struggle and this conflict. And I want to see my team win. Well, you see the picture there? There's a, there's a picture there of a broader reality that really matters. That really is happening. It's careful. We need to be careful that we don't confuse the picture with the broader reality to where we think the Super Bowl is, is super important. Because it's not. It's just a picture. And so it's not wrong to enjoy sports. But what I'm trying to drive at is the reality of battlegrounds is everywhere. You watch movies. What are movies full of? There's always a conflict somehow. We want the hero to over, overcome X conflict. Whether it's a superhero movie where he's got to defeat the aliens, or it's a Hallmark movie where she's got to work through her emotional issues to, to be able to marry the guy. Whatever it is, you wouldn't have a movie if you didn't have a conflict. Video games. What is video games? What, what are they? It's a constant, you're always on a mission. You're on a mission, you have a goal, you're building, you're accomplishing something. You don't play a video game so you can sit there and do nothing. You play the video games, you can participate in the story. And you can level up and get better and, and become the best and conquer and build worlds. Those are all pictures of battle. Those are all analogies of what's actually going on. Is that the real fight? No. Not even close. Too often, it's easy to get wrapped up in those things because they engage our hearts, they engage our emotions and our interests, but we need to keep them in their proper place and recognize if you have beaten all the levels of Super Mario Kart, that doesn't make you more equipped. You're going to have a hard sell. You're going to have to convince me how your Super Mario Kart prowess has equipped you to be a better Christian, husband, father, evangelist. 
how it has equipped you to go and fight the good fight that really matters. We have all of these vicarious battles that you can go get wrapped up in. And you can be, you can be a, a 30-year-old loser living in your parents' basement. But on the video game, you're a real man. And that's dangerous. Because you can see how when I go to that movie and I watch that superhero... We get this satisfaction of these, these stories, these wars, these conflicts, and the hero wins, or, or I get to be the hero, even. That's not where that drive is supposed to be satisfied. And if it is satisfied in this stuff, my team won. I lived all year for the Super Bowl, and my team won. We're missing the big picture in a terrible, terrible way. Is it a sin to watch a football game? No. Is it a sin to play a video game? No. But the question for the Christian isn't, is this a sin? If that's the question you're asking, that, that's baby level stuff right there. The question is, is, is Paul asking, is this a sin? Can I get away with this? Is it okay for me to do this? No. Paul is asking, what's going to make me the most effective athlete? Because I want the prize. And if it's not in that list... I'm going to set it aside. Okay, so there's, there's your pictures of warfare. And you can see how people all around, I mean, how many young men are getting their drive for the prize, for warfare, for victory from their video games. I mean, it's so common that it's just kind of like a, run, a running joke. That's, that's my, my generation and the next generation. They're just living in their parents' basement playing video games. We were made, we feel that desire for victory. But we've settled for a cheap victory. So that's number one. Is those are not real battle, battlegrounds. That is not that is not the point. Those are picture battlegrounds of the real fight. But they're easy to see and they're easy to feel. The spiritual com- combat that we're in is difficult to see. It's difficult to feel. The spiritual combat that we are in feels like going to work every day. It feels like changing dirty diapers and doing dishes. That does not release the dopamine like shooting up a bunch of aliens on the Xbox does. That makes you feel like I'm a hero. I I did it. I I fought those bad guys and I won. I'm a real man. We have to be able to connect the dots to the war that's really going on. To where we see, no, this, this is the race that we are called to run for the real war that's actually being fought for the souls of people across the world. I mean, this is, it doesn't get more epic if we only have the eyes to see. Marvel movies don't compare. You know, superhero movies don't come even close to the epicness of the story of the kingdom of God. We just have to have eyes to see the war that is going on above us, so to speak, and within us and around us. Okay, so there's your pictures of battlegrounds. Then you have battlegrounds that are easy to see that are real battlegrounds, like politics and culture. These are easy for us to see and to identify. And we do need to see and identify them. When we see the government trying to pass a law for schools that they need to read Heather Has Two Daddies, that's easy to see. That's a problem. This is, there's, there's some battle going on here. When we see the government coming to a landlord saying, you must rent the people with alternative lifestyles, quote unquote, that's easy to see. The conflict is becoming obvious. You know, culture. When movies are putting in, they're blaspheming God, they're putting in things that should only be done in private or should not even be done in private into their movies. That's easy to see. We can see this in the cultural warfare and the political warfare. It's all around us and it's easy to see that. And we need to see it. We need to respond to it biblically. We need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ And how do we connect the dots to those things? Why should Christians care about mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and so on? What is the biblical foundation for that? My wife asked me recently, we were were just talking about it. It's like, what's the biblical? Because there's no Bible verse you can look at that says, resist tyrannical government as such. But the biblical mandate for it is basically this. Jesus is the king. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
So we don't act like some guy is king just because he got elected. We recognize that Jesus is king over you too. So I am living as a citizen first of the kingdom of God. I answer first to my king Jesus. And so we interact that way with the politics and with the culture as free men in Christ, under Christ, first. But what I'm driving at talking about this is I want to point out that those things actually can distract us from the primary spiritual warfare that Scripture focuses on. Those things are real, and Christians should speak to those things. Christians should care about those things. Christians should be involved in those things. I would absolutely, I, I am all for the protests against the vaccine passports and all the stuff that we see, all the political activity pushing back against tyranny around the world. I'm all for that. And I think there is biblical basis for that because Jesus is the king and he sets men free. And the government isn't free to just come in and say whatever they want. They are under the authority of Christ. That said, how much of the New Testament, how much of, the, um, of what we're instructed in in the New Testament specifically, focuses on political involvement. Almost none. The Old Testament is full of law, and that is good. So we do not reject the Old Testament. This is not, I'm a New Testament Christian and not an Old Testament Christian. No, it's all God's word. It's all given by God. At the same time, because politics is such an obvious battlefield it is very easy to see that as that's the, that's where the the warfare is raging and it is spiritual warfare and we should be involved in it okay i've said that enough times what i'm trying to get at is we can't let that distract us from what scripture wants us to focus on that does need dealt with and we deal with that but we got to be careful that it doesn't distract us from the key battlegrounds to where we start identifying that as that's where the real conflict is. That's where we've got to get involved. We've got to save the culture. We've got to fight Hollywood. We've got to fight the Democrats. We've got to fight. Yes, that's spiritual warfare. Yes, we need to take a stand for liberty. But where does it start? Identify the key battlegrounds. Look at Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Where does Jesus start? Starts in your heart, in my heart. And if I'm going out there and condemning the sexual immorality in Hollywood movies, but I'm not loving my wife and living with her in an understanding way, I've got the cart before the horse. It doesn't mean I shouldn't condemn the sexual immorality in Hollywood movies, but it does mean... I need to get the log out of my own eye. If I'm going to condemn the world for <coughs> feminism, but I'm not being a godly, loving patriarch, then I'm missing the point. I've got the cart before the horse. If I'm going to go out there and take a stand for liberty, but I'm not discipling my children, or I'm not submitted to Christ in my personal life, I'm being a hypocrite. Where does it start? It starts with the log in my own eye. That's where Jesus starts. It starts in the heart, as we've said. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. I'm jumping around. This is a topical, topical sermon, so we're jumping around here through Scripture. I'm going to read the verses, so if you don't want to turn to everyone, that's fine. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Oh, and we, we just read this one. I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have... Preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So, and this ties in because what's, what's Paul focusing on here? He's saying, I discipline my body. I'm getting me under control. I'm winning the battle with my own flesh. And Paul was somebody who was out there involved in all sorts of, I mean, planting churches and preaching to people and addressing heresy and all sorts of stuff. But he didn't lose the focus on my heart has got to be right before Christ. I have got to fight the fight here first. I have got to win the battle here first. How many times do we see people that we would have pointed to as heroes of the faith, and then instead of a legacy of victory, it's a legacy of ashes and smoke. Because they lost the battle of the heart. 
And they were doing a bunch of great stuff that even edified a bunch of people. But somewhere along the way, they lost the battle of the heart. They stopped fighting the good fight of the faith and taking hold of the eternal life to which they had been called. And they started speaking to a bunch of great stuff, but their heart was far from Christ in some way or another. And that's, you know, that's not... That is humble condemnation, so to speak. You know, that we look at that and we see that's bad. And we also see, but by the grace of God, there go I. And that's why we want this mindset. I discipline my body and make it my slave. I make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. I'm a minister of the gospel and I don't want to blow it. I want to finish well. Oh, man. I want to finish well. I just, that, Paul's line, and I don't remember which epistle, I think it's 2 Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Oh my goodness. I want to say that one day. I don't want to say, I fought the good fight until. I almost finished the course. That's where the spiritual warfare starts. All that other stuff the politics and the culture that emanates from the primary spiritual warfare, which is the battle for hearts. It starts at an individual level dealing with my heart and then my wife's heart, my kids' hearts, the hearts of the people around us, maintaining our relationships, our communities. That is the process that God has made. That is how we fight spiritual warfare. You're going to get both are biblical things to do. You can campaign for a good candidate. That's good. That is biblical. You should be involved in politics. But politics is one of those things that slaps you in the face and says, I'm a battlefield that you should be involved with. And yes, you should. But don't miss out on the fact that that's a downstream battlefield and your neighbor next door who's going through a divorce, that's a, that's a primary battlefield. That's a essential. That's a foundational battlefield. For you to be there speaking the gospel into that, discipling them, working to fight for a, another godly Christian household. That's the primary thing. That's the kind of stuff that scripture really majors on. So yes, that doesn't take away from you should still go campaign for candidate Joe Christian Bob. <laughs> you should. We should be involved. We should care. We should pay attention. doesn't mean you shouldn't boycott that perverse Hollywood movie or that store that is now supporting Pride Month or whatever. You should. But don't be distracted by how obvious those are from the battlefield that Scripture emphasizes, which is a heart and community level battlefield. Colossians verse 1. I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1. Look at Paul's prayer. For this, this is verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask, now what does he ask? To ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's Paul's prayer for them. What is his focus? What battlegrounds are he pre- is he praying about? Praying that you'll be filled with the knowledge of the will of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you'll walk in the manner worthy of the Lord. That you'll please the Lord. That you'll bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. This is the kind of stuff that is not obvious. It is not in your face. This is, this is heart level stuff. That's the battlefield that he's really praying for. He's really drilling down to. These are heart level battlefields. I am praying that you will be walking with Christ deeply and truly and in knowledge and in wisdom and in holiness and putting to death sin. That's his focus. Do you think he doesn't want you to vote? Do you think he doesn't want you to speak to the culture around you? Absolutely not. 
But he is focusing in on, I want you to, I'm praying for you that you will win the battle of the heart. That your walk with Christ will be vibrant. And you know what? As your walk with Christ is vibrant, you're going to go out there and run into politics and run into the culture and run into all this other stuff where there are obvious battlefields that are tied into spiritual warfare and you're going to be equipped and ready to deal with those things as a Christian. And to be that prophet, to be that John the Baptist saying, it is not lawful for you to have your mother's wife or your brother's wife. (laughs) Or it is not lawful for you to pass a vaccine mandate. It is not lawful for you to force everybody to wear masks in church. Fill in the blank. It is not lawful for you to legalize the murder of the innocent. It is not lawful for you. And then you, you get involved in all those things, and that is good, and we should. But Paul starts in the heart. That's where the spiritual warfare focus is. The real battle, battlegrounds are things like relationships, things like holiness, things like putting to death sin, okay? That's what Scripture focuses on. So number two, identify the key battlegrounds. Don't get distracted, firstly, by the fake battlegrounds that are out there, wrapped up in sports, wrapped up in video games, whatever. Don't get distracted by those. Number two, don't get distracted by the real battlegrounds that are out there that are not the primary ones. So in that case, it's not don't get distracted in the sense of don't address them. No, we need to address them. But we need to not allow them to take a bigger place in our heart and in our vision. Because they're so in your face, they feel like the primary battleground. But that's actually not the case. They are the secondary battleground. And we can't mix that up just because they're so obvious. It starts with the primary battleground of the heart. Okay? So identify the key battlegrounds. Number three, have a strategy. It's interesting because we all know that warfare... Warfare requires strategy. Doesn't doesn't take much to to recognize that. Even even sports, you practice. You know, if you're a football team, you run your plays and you work out. If you're in, uh, you know, if you're a swimmer, then you you practice your swimming. And not only that, you if you're a team like a hockey team, you watch the videos of the team you're going to play against. And you strategy. Okay, this guy he always does this. And you're going to be with, you're paired against this guy. So when he does this, you're going to do, you strategize. That's sports, let alone military combat or physical combat. Like if you're, if you're going to fight in the UFC, are you just going to kind of walk out into the octagon and go for it? No, you train, you get in shape, you practice. Okay, if they throw this punch and you do this evasion and then you counter with this punch. And if they get you in this hold, here's how you get out of that hole. You strategize. If you're an actual real world combat, Military doesn't just, at least no, no good military, just kind of, okay, well, there's the bad guy. Let's just dump our troops out there and hope we win. No, they have a strategy. Okay, we're going we're gonna to sneak in. We're going to come around on, on the flank, and we're going to bring in the air support. And they think through these things. Why is it that we come to spiritual warfare and we're kind of like, well, I hope I win? Which, I mean, really, I think is a lot of the time that is our attitude. It's kind of, oh, here's another battle. Well, Lord, help me to win. And then we just kind of wait until we hopefully eventually win. And because God is gracious and merciful, eventually he does bring us through those conflicts. He is faithful to us even when our strategy is lame. But that does not excuse us from having a strategy for spiritual warfare. Why do we have this this idea that spiritual warfare is just something that we kind of survive? Spiritual victory just kind of happens. Like, I'm struggling with X sin. I'm, I'm grumpy. I'm angry today. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fighting lust. I'm fighting covetousness. I'm, I'm afraid of the opinion of men. I'm, I'm stressed out. Fill in the blank. And I pray about it sometimes. And I kind of wait for it to go away. That's not a biblical way of dealing with sin. If, if the fight against sin is combat, why don't we have a strategy? Why do we act like we just kind of pray about it and just kind of wait and hope for it to go away? God's sovereignty in saving us from our sin does not excuse us from being faithful in fighting the sin with biblical, with a biblical pattern, okay? So, have a strategy. Point number one, 
is that the foundation is gospel victory. And this is Romans chapter 6. You can't have a strategy to fight sin without the gospel. That's just self-improvement. And I mean, you can do that, but that's not, that's not Christianity. You're still going to be bound in your sins. You might get better at certain sins because you're improving yourself, but you're still a slave to your sins. You're not free, and you won't have any real victory, and you won't stand before God righteous because you're not in Christ. So the foundation for fighting sin is gospel victory. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. I.e., if you have not repented of your sins and died through Christ and been arisen through Christ to the newness of life, you're still in your sins. You are not free from sin. So none of this other stuff is going to avail you at all. If you have not repented of your sins, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are not a new creation in Christ, then just hang it up. Just recognize that you really... You can't fight the fight against sin. You're still on sin's team. You are still sin's slave. Until you come to Christ and get a new heart, you can have no victory over sin. So we as Christians are not preaching a gospel of self-improvement. A gospel of everybody could just get better if they would fight sin better. No. No. This is a fight that is only won and only even worth attempting in the power of Christ. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but... Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Did you notice his transition there? Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign. What's the therefore? Salvation, the gospel. He started off talking about how we are dead. We died with Christ. We are to walk in newness of life. And therefore, we do not let sin reign. Because sin is not our master anymore. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Sin is not our master anymore. Jesus is our master now. And because of that, because of that, we do not let sin reign. But you also notice that he put in the do not let sin reign. He didn't just say, you're no longer a slave to sin. So, yay! End of the book of Romans. No. He said, you are no longer a slave to sin, therefore, don't live like you're a slave of sin. There's still a fight here. You are now free from your, the, the master, the mastery of sin. You are now submitted to the mastery of Christ, and therefore, fight sin. So the gospel is the foundation. You can't win victory without the gospel. But the gospel is also not a promise that, okay, now you believe the gospel. So your fight for sin, your fighting in sin is done. Just, you know, go. You know, you're forgiven, so whatever. That's not the gospel. Do we continue in sin? May it never be. We're under grace. So present yourself as a slave of righteousness. Okay? So number one, the foundation is gospel victory. It's not something that we accomplish. It's not... It's not something that we earn. We earn our salvation. That beginning it backwards, right? He goes into the not letting sin reign after you've died to sin and you're walking in newness of life in Christ. It's not the other way around. It's not, do not let sin reign so that you can die to sin with Christ and be raised in newness of life. 
that is completely backwards. No, it's you come, you repent, you believe, you die. Now that you've been saved by faith and the grace of God, now you walk in righteousness. So we're fighting on a foundation of the gospel. So that means that we are fighting from faith. That means that our combat comes with joy and with rest in Christ. I fight as someone who's already been saved from sin. I fight as someone whose eternal destination is secure. <coughs> so here's, here's a misconception that we have in our minds. We think of joy and rest as going along with kind of like ease. Nonchalance. That's different. Those are different things. There is a kind of rest that is laying on a hammock in a nice summer breeze. <coughs> but there's also a kind of rest that we have in Christ that is a heart-level rest that you have while you're slinging your sword and dodging bullets. Joy and rest do not equate to nonchalance. Just because I'm resting by faith in the salvation of Christ doesn't mean that I'm out of the fight. It means that I'm in the fight with joy. I'm in the fight with peace. But I'm in the fight. In fact, I'm more in the fight than I would be without Christ. Because I have peace. I'm not afraid. I'm not a slave to sin. The outcome is not in question. So I can fight with courage and with joy. I can be a happy warrior, a warrior poet, the kind of soldier that sings as he's running into battle. Because I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I serve the one who has won the victory already. That faith and joy and rest come with a battlefield conviction. I'm a slave of Christ. And while I have joy and peace and rest, yet I still have this conviction that I'm going to get out there and I'm going to fight with determination for victory. So warrior, warrior mentality is not the same as being miserable. If you have a warrior mentality, that doesn't mean that you're just like constantly stressed and eh, I've got to fight sin. No, a Christian warrior mentality is joy, peace, faith, and combat all at the same time. Because of the foundation of gospel victory. Okay, number two. Foundation, part two, God's strength. We don't go into the battle in our own strength. Matthew 6.13, Jesus says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Implication, we need God to lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. That's not something that we can just do. I'm saved now, so I don't need to pray anymore. I just, I go out there and I avoid evil. No. We are told by Jesus, we pray. So part of our combat is prayer. And that leads to the question, how is your prayer life? How's my prayer life? Am I relying on the strength which God supplies, which he has promised to those who ask? Am I fighting in God's strength, or am I just not relying on the strength of God? And then the other one, Ephesians 6, 17, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Prayer in the Word. Kind of right there for us. If we want to be equipped to fight, we have to fight in the strength which God supplies. And the two ready and available conduits of God's strength for spiritual warfare are prayer and the word. So foundation number one, the gospel. If you don't know Christ, hang it all up. Foundation number two, the strength of God. If you're fighting in your own strength, hang it all up. Even though your eternal destination, if you've repented and believed in Christ, your eternal destination is secure, but you're still not reliant on the Lord, you're still not fighting the good fight in prayer and in the word, then you're not involved in the battle like you're called to be. Foundation number two is God's strength, okay? Then what is the biblical process for fighting sin? Biblical process for fighting sin. Identify it, put it off, and put on the right thing. Identify, put off, put on. It's a three-step process. Identify, put off, and put on. And this is why, this is really the nuts and bolts that I really want to get into here. Spiritual warfare, when we recognize that it's a heart-level thing, when we have a strategy in the way we approach it, the combat becomes so much more practical. Because when I reckon, if I stop just kind of like generally trying to be a good Christian, and I recognize, wait a minute, I have a sin problem here, and that sin is X. 
That sin is fear of man, or bitterness, or anger, or covetousness, or lust, or whatever. When you can identify it, then there's a scriptural pattern you can march forward to actually fight that sin. Instead of just kind of hoping that it's going to go away. So identify it, first of all. Then put it off and put on the biblical replacement. I'm going to look at a few verses, and then we'll look at how that works out practically. Okay, so biblical examples of this. Hebrews chapter 12, 14 and 15. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That one is kind of the put on and the put off. You have to pursue peace and make sure no root of bitterness springs up. If you notice in your heart, but how do you do this? You can't do this without identifying the bitterness issue. How are you going to take care against a root of bitterness if you're not looking out for roots of bitterness. See how the strategy comes into play here? The identification, wait a minute, I've got a bitterness problem. You stick a biblical term on it. I need to put off my bitterness. I need to kill this root of bitterness. And how? Just by saying, okay, I want to not be bitter. Lord, help me to not be bitter. No, and that's not to make light of prayer. But sometimes we do, we, it's just like this prayer just kind of like in general terms and then that's it. Instead of laboring in prayer and seeking, what do I put off? What do I put on? I'm bitter. I'm bitter with... I'm going to use Luke as an example because I'm not bitter with Luke. So. <laughs> Which is not to imply that I'm bitter with everybody else. Just to say that I can use Luke as, as an example because we have a good relationship. Praise the Lord. But I, I'm bitter with Luke. Why am I bitter with Luke? Oh, it's because he did this. Or whatever. Identify it. And that's, that's a root of bitterness, and that's causing me to treat him like this. And that's why we had that, that little tiff last Sunday. That it just felt the friction there. You know what? It's because i got a bitterness problem going on. Identify it. Put it off. I need to repent of my bitterness. And put on what? Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. I'm going to seek. I'm going to pursue. I'm going to work and fight for peace with Luke. I'm going to seek resolution there. I'm not just going to try to deal with the bitterness in my heart and just keep trying to deal with it and just kind of keep trying to put it off. I also need to put on love for my brother. I am going to do lunch with him next week so I can talk about it, pray with him, and ask him how he's doing. There's something. Find something to put on so that your walk with Christ now has legs, so to speak. It's actually touching down. This is spiritual warfare in real life. This is fighting the good fight. But you have to identify it, put it off, put it on. 2 Timothy 2.22. I believe we were here before also. 2 Timothy 2. No, we didn't come here yet. Okay. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So often we're just like, okay, I'm just going to flee the youthful lusts. But God calls us to run from and to run to. While you're fleeing that, you're pursuing this. That is biblical. That, that's how we run. We run from and to. So if you identify, okay, that, what does that require? You can't flee from something you don't recognize. If you're in the woods and a bear comes out of the woods, you run because you see a bear. If you're in the, well, actually, I don't know. You're probably not supposed to run from bears, but you get the idea. If you're in the woods and you don't see anything and you're running, what's that called? Jogging, right? You're not fleeing anything. You're just running through the woods. You can't flee from something you don't see. So identify, I got some youthful lusts going on here. I'm making provision for the deeds of the flesh here. You've got to recognize it. And then you've got to flee from it. And then you've got to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So instead of watching movies, which awaken youthful lusts in my heart, instead of that, I am going to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Okay, so what does that look like? With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's, you can read that verse. Okay, what does that look like? Put the spiritual warfare in real life. I'm going to flee the youthful lusts. I'm not going to watch that show that I know 
awakens these worldly passions in my heart, makes it harder for me to walk with Christ, makes me less interested in reading my Bible. I'm not going to watch that. Instead, I'm going to what? I'm going to listen to a sermon. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to go for a run and listen to to some scripture. Or maybe even just going for a run. Maybe that's edifying and uh, productive for you instead of something that is just youthful lusts. For a young man, I'm instead of sitting down on my computer where I know the temptation to pornography is going to be there, and I'm just going just to watch YouTube videos, flee, flee the youthful lust, and go work out. Because you've got a bunch of that young, manly energy, and you need to just go wear yourself out. Really. And it's good for you. Or go on that church uh, door knocking, you know, going door to door and adding people to your prayer list. Go, go do something that is biblically constructive. Put off, put on, with your focus on the goal. Flee those youthful lusts. It's not kind of hang out with the youthful lusts, but make sure you're trying to be a good Christian. Why is it not that? Because there's a war on. Because it is that important. Because Demas loves the, the present world, and so he leaves. And that's why you flee youthful lusts. Because it's a matter of life and death. And if we don't take it that seriously, then we're that guy on the battlefield taking selfies. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, uh, starting verse... This whole thing is just like put off and put on. But... We'll start in verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. There's lusts again. Lusts must be a big deal. Right? There's many kinds of lusts. It's not just sexual lust. There's lust for money, praise of men, food, whatever. Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Lusts deceive our heart. They make us think things that are not true and want things that are not truly satisfying. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Lay aside the old self, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, now it gets even more practical. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Put off falsehood, put on speaking the truth. If you've got a lying problem, the solution to the lying problem is not just stop lying. It's start telling the truth. Go fix the deceptions that are going on. I'm just kind of, I'm going to stop making more deceptions. No, go start telling the truth. Go walk in the light. Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You can't have true fellowship if you're not speaking the truth. You can't be members of one another if you're not speaking the truth with your neighbor. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Do you think of your anger as an open door for the devil? Because you should. That's what the Bible says. If you're angry, you are opening the door to the devil. You are giving him an opportunity to come into your house, into your life. To influence your children, your siblings, your, your fellow church members. Don't give the devil that opportunity. Let He who steals must steal no longer, put off, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Stop stealing and go work. Go work, work what is good, so that you will have something to share with one who has need. So don't just work, but work with the kingdom purpose. Work to give. Stop stealing and start giving. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Put off. Do you have a, you have a word problem? Do you, when things, when, when things get a little spicy in your relationships, when you're getting a little frustrated, when that anger is starting, do you have an unwholesome word issue? Identify it. You can't fight it. If you don't see it, identify, I have an unwholesome word issue. I let unwholesome words proceed from my mouth. Or maybe, maybe it's gossip. I let unwholesome gossip words proceed. I like to talk bad about people. Okay, identify it. Identify it, then put it off. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good. Put on words that are good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. I have a... Unwholesome word issue, I identify it, I put it off, I recognize, okay, every time I'm around this person, I like to talk bad about these people. Or every time, you know, every evening at thus and such time, the house is really busy, 
and everything gets really noisy, and I start to snap at my wife and kids and say things that I don't mean. Okay, identify it. Identify it. Put it off, but then have a strategy. Have a plan. Don't just think it's going to accidentally get better. Oh, I need to stop it. Oh, I need to stop it. Lord, help me stop it. Do pr- obviously, I'm not, again, I'm not belittling prayer. We have to pray about it. But we also need to build a biblical response pattern to it. Okay, here's the problem. I know it's, gonna, it's, it's, it's 5 o'clock, and the kids are getting noisy, and dinner's not on the table yet, and here it comes. Okay, what's your plan? How are you going to put on a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment? Maybe I'm going to put in a CD of hymns, just to set the atmosphere. I'm going to take a minute to pray, get my heart right, and then I'm going to go lovingly have my kids help. I don't know. What's your strategy? Have a put on there that you can put off the old and put on the new. And give grace to those who hear Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. What a list of put-offs. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Put those off along with all malice. Again, we're identifying. Oh, this is bitterness. Oh, this is clamor. This is slander. This is anger. Identify it. Put it off. And do what instead? Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Put that on. Oh, what a difference that would make in our relationships if we put off and put on those things. Matthew five twenty nine to 30. Jesus says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This is in the context of adultery. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I.e., there's a war on. It's that serious. And again, we see strategy here. Jesus is he's saying, you need to identify where you have these problems and you need to kill those problems. You need to fight those. You need to do the fireproof thing where the husband who has pornography issues takes his computer into the yard and smashes it. Because he's done. Well, amen. Pluck your eye out, so to speak. Not literally. But have a, a violent hatred for sin. A recognition that I struggle with this sin and I'm going to do whatever it takes to put that sin to death. See the strategy there? Identify it. Identify my eyes causing me to stumble. And put off. Put off that old man. And then from other passages, again, we see we also put on the new man. Matthew 6, 33 and 34. This is anxiety. How many of you have anxiety troubles? I have anxiety troubles. I am joyless so much of the time because my head is somewhere else except for right here where God has me. I'm either thinking about things that happened that I didn't want to happen, or things that are going to happen that I don't want to happen, or that might happen, and I'm afraid they're going to happen. <laughs> and Jesus said, don't worry. But he didn't just say don't worry. What did he say? This is another one where it, you get the put If you read the whole section, you can arrange it however you want. But 33 and 34, I'm going to read 34 first, so I get the put on and put off order. Okay, 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's put off. Stop worrying. Just quit it. Don't worry about tomorrow. Put that off. Verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Put that on. Quit your fussing. Quit your worrying. And put on seeking first his kingdom, and let him take care of the rest. Put off. Put on. Do you see the pattern? Identify. Put off. Put on. Be strategic in your fight against sin. Don't just expect sin to kind of go away. Don't just kind of generally pray that God will help you not be a sinner. Why not? Well, because, because Scripture paints a picture for us of fighting sin on purpose, with intention, with strategy, praying and working and fighting to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to walk in holiness. You can't flee youthful lusts that you don't see as youthful lusts. You can't repent of anger that you don't think of as anger. And sometimes even when we do see it as anger, we still don't have a strategic plan. How am I going to put this off? 
and put, put on the biblical alternative and walk in the newness of light. Spiritual warfare happens in real life and it's in the day-to-day stuff. And we have the opportunity to prayerfully and biblically identify. So this is, this is the closing question. This is the application question. What are your battlefields? What are your sin struggles? What are your pet sins, so to speak? Whether they're intentionally, you're like, I'm protecting this sin, or whether it's a matter of, I just struggle with it all the time. Either way, what are your primary struggle issues? How does the devil come at you? It's a good question to ask ourselves. I would encourage all of us to identify your top three. What are the top three sins that you struggle with that steal your joy, that, that lead to whatever, that, that are throwing off your walk with Christ, that are damaging your witness, whatever it is. You know what they are. Prayerfully ask the Lord, Lord, what, what are the, how does the devil come at me? What are, my, what are my big ones? Write them down and then make a list. Okay, I've identified them. One, two, three. How, do I, how practically am I going to put this off? Every time this happens, this sin follows behind it. Okay? I need to avoid this. I need to flee this. Or maybe something you can't flee. Right? If it happens every dinner time, you can't stop eating dinner. I wouldn't recommend that as your long-term biblical strategy. Right? So how am I going to deal with it? How am I going to put it off? How am I going to put on what glorifies Christ? And then once you've got those three, and you're praying, you're fighting, you're seeing growth there, there'll be more. That's the Christian walk. We keep fighting the good fight. But guess what? We can fight with joy because we're not a slave to sin anymore. Jesus has bought the victory for us. So let's fight the way he tells us to fight. Put down our selfie stick, pick up our sword, and get out there and fight the real battles. For the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is, gives such good and practical guidance. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see the spiritual war that we are in. That you would help us to identify the sins which so easily entangle, not just as a nebulous category, but in a way where we can actually put them off and fight them in your strength and put on the godly and Christ-like alternative. Show us, I pray. Convict us. Show us the sins that we are yielding to. Strengthen us in putting them off, in fighting that good fight, courageously and joyfully and by faith. Not trusting in our own strength. Not... not having our joy dependent upon our own success, resting in your victory, following you faithfully in obedience. Make us faithful soldiers of Christ, I pray. Faithful, joyful, courageous. For the glory of your name, by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.